This week, I was pleased to have Yuri Klarman, CEO of BlocksRoute, on the podcast. Now, when I was in-house counsel for Wall Street firms in various automated markets, I dealt heavily with algorithmic trading and the issues associated with latency. For much of trading on Wall Street, a millisecond or even a picosecond could impact execution quality. And therefore, firms use software, hardware, architecture, and even geography to try to compress this time. It was an arms race. In digital asset markets, miners and validators produce blocks on the change to reflect its change in state, and that production might represent a trade. In that way, the finality that they create on the chain is very similar to what an exchange does with regards to a trade. It's an analogy, but Yuri, in this episode, shows how they actually work, and from this, we move from how sophisticated traders can actually extract value by trying to influence the ordering of blocks on the chain. This is known as MEV. Phil Diane popularized this term in a paper he did in 2019 and has a company called Flashbots that provides a lot of data on this. We reference it in the podcast. Lastly, we close up with a project that Bloxerout is pursuing to make the settling of transaction costs on Ethereum, otherwise known as gas, more efficient. Yuri is very knowledgeable and great at explaining. So I hope you learn a lot from this podcast. I know I certainly did. Please give us feedback. There's plenty of ways to do it. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn. We have a website. If you like the podcast, share it in your podcast app and send it to one person you think might like it. Why not? Thanks so much. And now here's a podcast with Yuri Klarman, CEO of BlocksRoute. Welcome to The Encrypted Economy, a weekly podcast featuring discussions exploring the business, laws, regulation, security, and technologies relating to digital assets and data. I am Eric Hess, founder of Hess Legal Counsel. I have spent decades representing regulated exchanges, broker-dealers, investment advisors, and all matter of fintech companies for all things touching electronic trading with a focus on new and developing technologies. So this is Eric Hess with The Encrypted Economy, and today I'm super excited to have Yuri Klarman, the CEO of BlocksRoute, uh, on the podcast. Yuri, welcome. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. So you have an interesting background. We always often start our podcast with that. Do you want to give us a little bit of a story of you know, what brought you to where you are today here? Sure. So I was actually a software engineer back in Israel. You know, doing like, I was a developer, doing the regular developer stuff. And I found it kind of like not the greatest experience to be, you know, starting work very early in the morning and working very, very late. So I decided I went to Northwestern University and I decided to do a PhD. And, you know, I was very focused on being like, okay, I'm going to academia and professorship. So I, I joined there. I started like my expertise is computer networks and specifically blockchain networking. And so I started my research with my then advisor, now co-founder, Professor Kuzmanovich. And we were doing all sorts of research like on different aspects of networking. And we started to dive into blockchain networking. And when we did that, coming with our background as networking experts, then a few things became apparent to us, which possibly were not apparent, that apparent to other people, specifically how the network layer, how in a blockchain, how blocks and transactions propagate and how that is the single most important bottleneck into scaling blockchains. And really the only thing that prevents us from scaling blockchains. And so we kind of like really, do, like we dove really deep into that rabbit hole. 
And then we came up with a block chart, okay? Basically like an infrastructure which allows blockchain to scale. Doesn't matter which protocol, doesn't matter like, like protocol agnostic, proof of work, proof of stake, whatever. And then I remember me and Alex, Professor Guzmanovic, were, were sitting in, in his room and we're kind of like outlining what it would look like and potentially what the business around it. And we said, well, you know, this is like a billion dollar idea, not a million dollar idea, a billion dollar idea. And we kind of have to do it. Like you can't give it up. Like this is too valuable. This is too good. This is too innovative. This is too important not to do. So we started to start, like we started a company and I had zero intention of working in a startup, let alone, you know, running a startup, starting a startup. And so we found ourselves, but like, we know what needs doing. And so that just that. And so we started Blockstrout and we hired other people and Yal, our co-founder joined us. And, and that was 2016, 2017 or so. And so kind of like my background, I, I wasn't even, like I was very focused on going to academia, but it hit us, this great idea hit us. And we'll talk about this in a second. And then we realized we have to do it. And now, now I'm incapable of doing anything else. Like once you start up <laughs> for a, once you, I can't, like I used to be a software engineer. Like I can't even touch our product at this point. Like nobody would allow me to touch the code. Like, Uri, you'll make a mess out of it. Like nobody, like not the research, like I do, you know, bringing the vision and stuff around that. But at some point, once you start doing a startup, it's very, very hard to do anything else. Exciting. So, uh, and, and we're, we're going to get into it a, a little bit. So, you know, we, we talked prior to the podcast, this, this notion of, of layer zero, and there's obviously layer one, layer two. On the podcast, we've never actually broken down the different layers. I, I think a lot of listeners may understand, but in the context of layer zero, let's sort of like sketch out the, the, the Sure, topology. sure. So you're absolutely right. Like people throw these words around, like layer one and layer two, and they're not really sure what that means and like what's <laughs> the stack of the blockchain. So let's break it down for a second. So when people say layer one, they mean the consensus layer, the blockchain itself, okay? That could be Ethereum or Bitcoin, or I don't know, Polkadot or Solana or any of, of, of or Celo, whatever. That's the blockchain itself. When people say layer two, they're saying, can we build some system on top of it that uses the blockchain, but doesn't put any every single transaction there? So layer one transaction is, you know, I send you Bitcoin, I create a transaction, it propagates, it gets into a block, and voila, that's in the blockchain. Layer two is saying something like, how about me and you create a joint account? I put five Bitcoins, you put five, or five ETH, I put five ETH, and then that joint account has like, oh, it's when it closes, it needs to bring you five, five ETH back and five ETH to me. And then after we do this initial step, now, if I want to pay you one ETH, I can just sign you a message saying like, okay, now it's an update to the joint account. It should be six for you and four for me. And then you want to pay me. And so now it's like, you pay me two ETH. So now it's six for me and four. And we, we can update it a million times. We're not actually updating the smart contract. We keep it to ourselves. And only when we decide a day from now, a month from now, a year from now, whenever, that we want to close the account, maybe at the time, well, you you got nine ETH and I just deserve one because most of my payments were towards you, then all these interactions don't really happen on the chain. You just commit it every so often, let's say after a year or something like that. So that's layer two. Layer one is the actual blockchain. Layer two is on top of it. 
Blockstraught is layer zero. It's operating underneath the blockchain. So we operate at the network layer. What does that mean? Well, you might run a node and I run a node and a bunch of people run nodes and they send blocks and transactions to one another. We operate in propagating transactions, propagating blocks. We're a faster internet for blockchains. Might be a, a, a good um, um, explanation for it. And so let's break it down even further and even more simply. The way blockchains work is that, let's say I want to send you one Bitcoin. I create a transaction. The transaction says, oh, send one Bitcoin from my account to your account. And then I sign it. So it's a, a cryptographic signature, which shows that I am in charge of where the money is coming from. And then I create this transaction. And I send this transaction out there to the peer-to-peer -peer network. Everybody hears it. And then after a while, a validator or a miner, depending on the blockchain, would hear all these, they all hear these transactions, would aggregate all these transactions that it hears into a block. It successfully created and add that to the blockchain. So every so often, somebody would create a long list of transactions, a block of transactions. And the result is a chain of blocks, right? The blockchain, which contain all the transactions that ever happened. So what we do, and that's how blockchains work. That's kind of like the TLDR. What we do is that we allow blocks and transactions to propagate faster. So we kind of like keep everybody in saying, like, oh, here are new transactions, here are new transactions, here are new transactions. So everybody knows all the transactions waiting to be mined, waiting to be added to the blockchain. And people call this, in Ethereum, it would be the mempool. There isn't really such a thing as the mempool. There isn't a single one because at any given time, I might know a few transactions, you know, other slightly different transactions, like maybe I know one transaction you haven't heard about yet. And by the time we think you already know three transactions, I don't know, and I know two other new. So there isn't a thing, the mempool, each one has a slightly different perspective. And what Blockstar does is keeping everybody knowing the same mempool. So if everybody knows the same transactions, when you mine a block and you want to send it to your peer, you don't actually need to send the entire block, like a long list of transactions. You can just send the meta metadata. You can say, oh, I have this block. It has transaction 537, 103, 404. And when I receive that, I know what is transaction 13, 47, 404, et cetera. So I can, the block can be compressed and decompressed on the other side. You don't need to trust us. You don't need to trust anybody else. You still validate the block. When the block propagates on the wire, right? When you send these packets over, and again, I'm a networking guy, so this is my angle. When you send the block on the wire, you just send smaller pieces of data because if everybody knows the transactions, you don't actually need to send them. These are the layers, right? You have the, layer one is a chain itself. Layer two are stuff on top of the chain. We operate underneath it, right? The same way that if you run a node, your node has no idea whether the data he's receiving, if that went over copper wires or optic fibers or through satellite or through a cellular connection, you have no idea. He, or the node does it, like it just got the data. That's the important piece. And so because it's underneath it in the stack and we do the same, we operate at layer zero underneath the chain. And before hopping and comparing it to other solutions out there, why are we doing it? Why did we start Blockstar to begin with? Because it turns out that the network layer is the most critical piece when it comes to scalability. And why is that? Because if we talked about how blockchains work three minutes ago, right? People create transactions, they propagate, and then somebody take all the transactions and add to a block. 
there is a prerequisite, there is a requirement if you want to create a new block and a new valid block, and that is you must know of the previous one, right? You can't add the new block before hearing of the previous block because maybe some transactions are no longer valid. Maybe they're already were added in the previous block. So you can't add a new block of transactions unless you know what's the current state, right? What is Which blocks had appeared? So you can only create a new block if you've heard the previous one. And why does that matter? Why, what, why am I making such a big deal about it? Because if you try to take a blockchain and scale it, let's say by 100x, 100x, by the way, is nothing. Like 100x brings us to nowhere close to how big we need to be. But if we scale it by 100x, so some miner or some validator create a new block and it's 100 times bigger, right? You do 100 times more transactions per second. The block is 100 times bigger. If I created this block and I need to send it to you, my peer, I need to send 100 times more data. It takes me 100 times longer to send it that data. It takes a hundred longer time to for everybody to hear this new block. And so the time until the next block can be added also increases by a factor of a hundred, right? So you can make them a hundred times bigger, but then you'll have to space them out. They'll have to come at a slower rate. They'll have to come you a hundred times bigger, but the time between blocks would increase by a hundred times, right? If we can compress them and send them super fast to everybody else, then we can allow blockchains, all blockchains, Proof of work, proof of stake, doesn't matter what the protocol is. It's about data propagation. If we can do that, then we can allow any blockchain to scale. And this is what got us super excited and how we went about it. And this is why we're super excited about layer zero and kind of like the infrastructure that allows blockchains to scale. Great. Now, I, I've also heard you sort of compare what you do to the, what Akamai did for the internet. Do you want to like draw that analogy? I think it would also sure, help sure. to sort of explain so, what Blockstrat is. Akamai is a company I, lo I really look up to. I actually am, am friendly with um, Jonathan Dealey, one of the co-founders. And Akamai really changed the game coming from MIT in like 96 or something like that of the internet. What they did is in order for people who start surfing the web and in order to get like, you go to a website, there's a bunch of photos there and a bunch of articles and whatnot. Instead of you going to the server who runs that website, which might be on the other side of the world, and then get that picture and download it, it takes forever. So you go to the website and it loads slowly, slowly, slowly. They created the CDN, the Content Distribution Network. What that means is that in any major city, anywhere close to you, nowadays, literally everywhere around the world, this data is stored. So all the pictures, if you go to, I don't know, to Twitter or Twitter is a good example, then you don't actually need to go to their servers in like uh, in California or something and bring the images there. The images sit, I'm in Chicago, they sit right here in Chicago. So when I go to the website, it redirects me to grab items from very close to me and everything opened up in a snap. And that really changed the game for the internet because it changed the experience. All of a sudden you can get everything fast. And, and that's what the, the concept of CDNs, right? Content distribution network, it just makes sure that the data is close to you. Blockstrat, we created the BDN, the blockchain distribution network, which allows, it's not about static data like images, rather it allows for blocks to be propagated extremely fast to improve the experience and to be able to produce larger blocks at a higher rate. And so these are kind of like, we're, there, there are a lot of similarities. We can talk about the business side as well, but that's kind of like the heart of it. Like they allowed images and items and static items to be broadcast. We allow for dynamic blocks keep coming, et cetera, to be propagated extremely fast. And that's kind of like the analogy. And also they're an awesome company.
So, so we'll, we'll sort of take the other side of, of addressing the scalability just to kind of continue with the, I guess, the educational. See, we have a, a, a aspiring professor here, so why wouldn't I take advantage of it? So, <laughs> so, so, so in many ways, you're doing at the back end what sharding is also trying to do on, I guess, on a layer two, sharding or even parachains or basically anything where you're collecting these transactions and trying to compress them and then, you know, reserving a, reserving a block or locking a block and then facilitating all this scalability off chain and then putting it on chain. Is that... So, so, so let's unpack that. So first of all, I would even argue that sharding isn't a layer two, it's a layer one, and we'll talk about this in a second, but these are like our composable method. It's kind of like they're not uh, mutually exclusive. The idea like Blockstart is completely compatible with power. I literally spoke with Polkadot guys like yesterday. This is like Blockstart is, com is completely compatible. We allow for blocks to propagate fast. So let's talk for a second about what sharding is. Sharding is the idea that instead of having one chain, you'll have, let's say, a hundred chains, but they're all mini chains, right? Each one of them does this thing, like it's a chain, but they think of it like, like a braid. They interleave with one another, okay? So you can transact here and transact there. And so like you have a hundred chains which interleave, so each one commits to another one. And the result of that is that their security properties are kind of like joint. So think about it like, well, if one chain can do 15 transactions per second, then 100 chain can do 1500 transactions. That's like that very simple math. And so instead of using different 100 different chains, these are connected to one another, their finality and security and all liveliness and all these kind of like parameters are not divided among 100 chains, rather they are combined among them. And this is the basic idea of sharding. Each shard is its own chain and they kind of like interleave with one another so their security is joint. Parachain is a very similar concept. Also Ethereum and the beacon chain, very, very similar. But the idea is that they're not just interleaving with one another. There is a main chain, right? The relay chain in Polkadot or the beacon chain in Ethereum, which all the other chains interleave to, right? So it's kind of like, Think of it like a hundred chain, and every so often they commit the block, the hash of their block into the relay network or whatever the main, the beacon chain is. And so this, if if we go back to what the definition of layer one and what's a layer two, so sharding, if you take the chain and break it into a hundred chains and they interleave with one another, that's a layer one. It's not a layer two. It's not on top of a different chain in every so common. If you talk about like a beacon chain and a parachain, you could call it a layer one, or you could say, well, listen, no, the relay chain or the beacon chain, that's the layer one and the others are on top of it. So the other are layer two. So you, that, that's like, it's, it's a game of words. I don't think it matters significantly, like, but that's the principle. And so blocks route, how do we compare? How is, well, if you do a hundred chains and you can successfully do it, and it's a lot easier said than done, well, we'll scale each one of them. And so if you can make it that you run 64 or 100 chains, then you get a 64x or 100x improvement. If we can improve that by another 100x, then you get like a 10,000x, it's great. So, so the idea is that we can allow, and again, I said earlier that 100x is nothing and we need that much more. 100x brings us just to be able to do like a quarter of the, what, you know, what Visa is currently doing or whatnot. And, you know, nowadays, when you talk about DeFi, when you talk about like all the interesting stuff, 
blockchains are used for, decentralized exchanges will eat any amount of like, like, like throughput that you'll give them. You'll need layer two, you'll need layer one, you'll need layer zero, you'll need like aggregate, you'll need every, literally the bigger you can make it, the cheaper you can make it, the more it would be used and more professional and more value would be created. So these are not competing solutions. These are composable solutions with the slight difference that blocks route and layer zero is very simple. Like we just like discuss it, like, 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 like how it works, right? We keep everybody in sync about the transaction and then you can compress it. There's no rocket science math around how you make it work and just breaking the security and merging it again. So we're just a simpler solution. So it's easier, but these are all composable and all, all, all compatible. Does that make sense? It does. Just don't test me. So we talked a bit about the, the, the benefits of the scalability, but what are some of the implications of the network layer that people may not be as aware of? So coming from a networking background and you know working on the network layer, when we got into DeFi more deeply, then we all of a sudden realized the DeFi game is very different from what people think. Right. People think that like, well, I'm a DeFi trader. I go like I sit, I look at the prices on Uniswap or whatnot like that. And I wait until the last, like I see it like a dip and say, okay, now is the perfect time. I identify that this is the time I click click buy or sell or whatever, or the dip or the or the peak, whatever, or liquidity like liquidations, doesn't really matter. And they think this is all like immediate, right? Like, like you would if you go to Coinbase or something like that, like you send an order, it just happened, etc. But even at Coinbase, let alone in DeFi, the game being played is actually very different than how you imagine it. So let's say that you're sitting at home, you're, you know, you're a home trader trading in DeFi, let's say Uniswap. The prices that you see are not the real prices. It's very similar to playing a game with a very high lag. A block was mined, added transaction, or somebody sold, let's say, ETH for BTC or that, prices changed. By the time you see it, you probably hear see it like a second later, two seconds later, or something like that. That means that in 15% of the cases, a new block was mined, the prices are already different, and you don't even know it, right? You're seeing the prices as they used to be when the block was created, right? So, so for, for those who are less familiar how Uniswap works, people buy and sell like any other trade. And the idea is that like, well, if I sell ETH for BTC, then the price of BTC would increase, the price of ETH would go down, and there might be arbitrage opportunities and kind of like every trade changes the ratio between prices. But thinking, put on your, you know, high frequency trader hat for a second and think about it this way. If you're seeing a block, it takes you in the best case scenario, a hundred, sorry, 800 milliseconds, that's like 0.8 seconds, okay, under a second. In the best case scenario, it takes you 0.8 seconds to get a block, so you see the prices, and then you click, oh, buy, I want to buy ETH. You send the transaction, that transaction is going to take something similar, like over half a second just to reach the pools and the miners, which they need, like they need to get the transaction, they need to try to put it in the block, and then one of them would create a new block. So during this time, until you hear of the block, and by the time you send the transaction, a new block might be mined. Like a new block come in Ethereum every 13 seconds on average, but that's the average, right? 8% are mined within a second. 16% or so are mined within two seconds, and so on. And so if it takes you, it might take you six seconds 
until you see like if you're using like something like alchemy like i say infura was like after a second and a half alchemy were like after six seconds these are not companies that are optimized for speed these are companies which optimize for supporting a lot of users but they're not there to make it as fast as possible so you might be seeing prices which are six seconds ago okay six seconds ago is forever in 50 percent of the case and new block was mine prices are different you just don't know it and so i really think think about it like playing like Temple run or something like that. You, you're trying to run, you're trying to cap gold or something like that, but you're not really playing that. It's more like you get like a, a friend texts you, well, you should jump right, right? So a block was mine, but you know, it takes you a while until you hear about it. And then like you yell to your brother upstairs, oh, jump right, right? Because that's like your transaction <laughs> until it actually executes. Your chances of, you know, actually hitting the gold are not that great because you're hearing about it slowly you're reacting slowly so these are things that most people in DeFi are completely unaware of unless you're working at the network layer like we actually with with, with the DeFi boom of june of 2020 last year we found ourselves in this like super cool position where we can give access to blocks very quickly like not at the speed of light but pretty close to the speed of light, right? We propagate blocks and transactions. I don't know, 150 milliseconds is our average, something like that. So we're connected to most top 20 pools in Ethereum. And so side note, like we work for all chains, but we focus strongly on Ethereum because that's where all the economic activity is happening. And all of a sudden we found ourselves in this like super unique position. Think like, I don't know, flash boys for DeFi is how I like to call it, right? Like flash boys are the people who connected New York and Chicago. And if by being three milliseconds faster than everybody else, if prices crash in New York, they're the first one to sell in Chicago and you know beat everybody else to it. And so we do that the same. We give fa like faster connectivity, but in DeFi where you need to be connected to everyone because a transaction can come from everywhere, a block could come from everywhere. And so by operating at the network layer, we saw, back to your question, like the game is very different than what you think and if you're like any all the major trading firms like or most of them are using our, our services those who don't should be using our services and so because if, if you're moving a billion dollar a day or 10 billion dollars a day you should care so that's kind of like one aspect um like just a speed another aspect does that does that make sense it does. Does that feed into the ability for uh, people who are like validators on the pool to extract value or you, you're getting? So, so it, it's exact. So, so a lot of people talk nowadays about MEV, minor extractable value. Or maximum and, these days. <laughs> so true. But that just to make it sound better, it really is about like the, the concept is of why is it like it's minor or validator, whoever construct the block. Basically, the idea is that like, oh, if I see, like, I could be an arbitrage trader or whatnot like that, but you know who would be the best one at it? A trade, uh, sorry, the miner or the value, whoever creates the block can order, he can put the sell orders to price it, price down as much as possible and then make a giant trade against them or the opposite, all the buy orders. If there's a liquidation opportunity, he can drive the price down, create intentionally create a liquidity right think about like, oh, sorry a liquidation if you have a like a loan or something like that which is close to being like liquidated you you just might be able to push it enough in order to liquidate it and then you know return it back to to normal so whoever creates 
the blocks are actually in the most in in the best position to extract that value. Now, miners and pools, actually, that's not their expertise. So what we're seeing nowadays a lot, especially with flashbots, is that other, they're called searchers, people would look for these opportunities. Let's say I can, I can capture 10 ETH from all these kind of things. Like 10 ETH is a lot. Usually it would be like half an ETH or one ETH or something like that. And then I create that like, oh, this transaction, then that transaction, there's, we'll talk about front running, back running, sandwiching, like what are these opportunities exactly? But I can do that. And then I put a really high fee on that. I just like, I give it to the pool and say, include these transactions in these order. And I would pay you 0.9 ETH, right? So it's kind of like there's one ETH to be extracted. The searcher might keep 1% or 5% or 10% or something like a small percentile. And most of it, it would give to the miner. Why would it give the most to the miner? Because somebody else, like there's going to be a bidding war. If I'm just offering him like half an ETH, then somebody else who see exactly the same opportunity will offer him the same thing, but will bribe more. So this is kind of like how the game is being played currently. And this is why it's really minor extractable value. It's kind of like, it might be done by somebody else, but at the end of the day, the person or the entity extracting the most value is whoever constructs the block. So that's now I suppose like now I suppose not all miners would take that, right? I mean, if I'm giving you an order in, in the exact order I want it to be in, and I say I want, I mean, it's not so much the order. I guess it's also the precedence, right? Like, hey, I want to be I want to be the first in line in this precedence, and I'm going to pay you more so I can be first in line. Right. So, so it's actually both. Like, I want to be like I want to be first, and I want this to happen. Like this transaction, then that transaction, then my transaction, then somebody else's transaction, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And nowadays, it's very common in Ethereum. Like most pools participate in this. Like, like we, we can talk about further in Flashbot about this, like deeper. But let's break down. So this is MEV at the high level, and we can break it down into what people are saying: what is front running, what is back running, what is sandwiching, which is doing both, and what is like liquidations and toxic liquidations. And so so we, we can kind of like, I think it's worth maybe touching on this. So if we said just a second ago, like I want, let's say this, somebody is selling a thousand ETH for USDC on Uniswap. There is a transaction, it sells tons of ETH, the price of ETH would go down. Front running is saying, oh, I want my transaction to happen before that, I want to sell my ETH before the price crashes. Now, front running is not only capturing value, I do this before this thing happened, it's also screwing over the transaction. Whoever you're front running is your victim, because if I sell ETH before that, then I push down the price of ETH, and whoever that send that transaction will get less money. He'll be selling ETH at a lower price. So front running is just, I want my transaction to happen before this happens. Back running is a similar concept, but if uh, if that person sold ETH, 1,000 ETH on Uniswap, it drove the price down. And now if you look on all the market arbitrage between like centralized exchanges, decentralized exchanges, et cetera, the real price is somewhere in between, right? The, like if once all the arbitrage is kind of like cleaned and, and done, then the Uniswap price was pushed too like downward too much compared to everybody else. And the truth is in between. So back running is, oh, I see that the price of ETH went down. It went down more than the actual price or what I perceive to be the actual price. 
So I want to buy ETH immediately after that transaction. So backrunning is the same thing. I want to buy after it happens because I know the price would continue up until this like middle ground. And backrunning doesn't screw over the transaction. Like that, there is value to capture there, but nobody like otherwise it would go to the random person who tried to buy after that. But it doesn't hurt the people who created the transaction. So these are front running and back running. And if you do both, it's called sandwiching. That transaction, I want to buy before it, and I want to sell afterward, and I want to capture all the value around it. So these are when people kind of like hit like like hear, hear these terms like front running, back running, and sandwiching. They're not again, it's not rocket science. These are, I think, very simple at the end of the day. And I think one more term I think worth exploring here is like liquidations and toxic liquidations, which is basically if I take a loan, like I, I put ETH and take USDC for that or something like that, I need to have a collateral, right? I put like, uh, I borrow 10 ETH and I, and I put quite a lot of USDC instead of it. But if the price of ETH crashes, then maybe my collateral is not enough or close to be not being enough. And there is a process called liquidation is that somebody spots that and say, okay, let's close this thing. So, so because it's not, like the loan is unsafe at this point, let's close it so we're not losing out even further. So it's kind of like cutting our losses, right? So it's kind of like, okay, liquidate the entire thing. The collateral is not enough. And whoever originates that and track that is being rewarded with the bonus, right? It's kind of like, okay, he gets a piece of the pie because he found out there, there, there's a loan, the collateral is not enough and it's bad for the system. So people are incentivized to notice this and act on it by being rewarded for finding it. So this is what liquidation is. But if you're the miner and you see, oh, here I have like buy and sell, buy and sell, buy and sell, they kind of like balance one another. But what if I just put like sell, 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 like all the sell orders after one another, push the price really down so I can create, I can make sure that liquidation happens. It wouldn't have happened by itself, but if I play the right way, I can make it happen liquidate it, capture the reward, and then put the buy, 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 and everything go back to normal. And the poor guy who wasn't collateral and I like, got screwed and the miner or the searcher, whoever initiated that, captures the liquidity. So that's kind of like a toxic liquidation. Does that make sense? It does. It's, so, it's similar It's similar concepts to like, the, you know, that what's regulated on in broker dealers, you know, trading, definitely, right? Definitely. The, the distinction is, is that you almost have to think of the miners or the validators as being almost the exchange where or the settlement where it's it's trading like because because today the exchanges can't do that there's no they're they you know they're heavily regulated at least in the US and there's no way that you could you could do that but the, you know then you go down to the brokerage level their their order books are larger they may be even running their own trading systems and there's games that are played even there which is why IEX has the the, the magic uh, the magic spool box right right um, and so and, and this goes exactly to you mentioned earlier about like co-hosting like or colo colocation colo yep this is basically the idea like if you sit at the if you see rice night so if you're the miner or if you're a searcher like if you hear about all these things what buy orders are, which sell order, like what's happening. Co-location is when you think about a centralized exchange, like you, you want to sit literally in their offices, connected to their computer directly, and you build your infrastructure to sell like nanoseconds, like every, like the faster you can make it, 
the idea you need to be faster than everybody else. And so like, if you hear about it fast, you can front run, back run, you can do all these things. That's actually, that's, no, that's a great point. That's a great point because I was saying, yeah, it doesn't, it, it can't occur at the exchange level per se, but you're spot on because, you know, you have these colo centers, uh, you know, and right. you have an advantage, you have a speed advantage, you pay more, but you get this great advantage. The difference is the exchange can't do it like in, in the way that the miner, right. the validator does it. But in fact, they're actually are doing it because they're facilitating right. it. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like I hire somebody to do it that I hire means like, OK, somebody else is doing it. He's sitting at my office, like connected to my building with it. So, and I charge them for it. So I'm not doing it. I just capture the value, similar to miners and validator at that. Like, like the, they're not, they're just accepting bundles of transaction, but they capture the value, which is again, why the miner, like MEV is the minor extractable value, not really the maximum. It's yeah. not what the total value, rather what can the, whoever construct the block and order the transactions, what can he achieve by adding transaction, removing transaction, reordering them, et cetera, et cetera. So this is exactly that. And there's and a funny there's a funny story I'll just throw in while we're on the exchanges. So before they actually did all the, the colo facilities, before they got into that game, there were actually shops that would like buy retail space that was located across on the NYSE data center. I think it was like a restaurant or something where they basically, some training firm went in and just gutted it and just like, you know, built all the telco lines so they could get that like immediate access that the hop would be that much quicker. So, so yeah. I, I think, I think it was called like the red building. I don't remember. Yeah, something like, like that. Yeah. There, there's like the, the red building in front of the, of, I don't, I think it was in, in front of the New York exchange. If I, if I remember the story correctly, it's kind of like, Everybody bought this guy like, because they're literally like the closest hop you could get without like being within the building. And nowadays yeah. you're just literally within the building. But it was but the early like, stages of the red building was even that they went and they gutted an existing, I think it was a restaurant or something. Really? They basically, yeah. So, so there's That's some lore behind that. Yeah. I'll, yeah. Yeah. Well, you have background with IEX, right? So you're kind of like, yeah. like well, you, you, you know exactly. Yeah, so for the listeners, I was uh, IEX uh, was was a client of mine, and uh, so I, I actually um, right around the time that Michael Lewis was writing his book. So who knows? Maybe I could have been in in Flash Boys, but uh, I, I yeah, chose so, I, so I chose let, not to go uh, that route. Like IEX is Flash Boys, the people yes. who connect the New York and Chicago to get that slight advantage and beat everybody else in in trading. And yeah. so, and um, I, I, IX wasn't the one who got the advantage. IX was the one who was who put in the magic uh, right, right. Who, shoebox, who the white, right, yeah, right. to equalize it. So, yeah, exactly. So, going back to your original question, if you're coming from the network layer, then all of a sudden you understand these games are speed games, or like everybody can participate, but you have a very big advantage if you hear all the transaction as they come faster, if you propagate your transaction faster. And you can't colo, you can't co-locate like you could with an exchange, with a centralized exchange, because you need to be connected with everyone, right? You need to be connected with all the pools and all the miners and all the nodes who create the transaction to see as they happen. And so our infrastructure, which is built to connect everybody, kind of go, okay, we we level the plane. Anybody can get connected and be coloed, right? Be co-located with everybody else's. It's more important for the larger traders just because they move bigger sums of money. But like, it's just as important for your personal trade. You're just like, is it worth it for me to pay for it? Uh, may, not the same way that it's worth for somebody who moves like a billion dollars each, each day. And so, and, and one question I have is like, you know, when I when I hear MEV, my my first instinct is to think, this is bad, 
right? Because it's an unfair advantage. But I've also heard that there's a lot of arguments that it's not all bad, that there are some positive aspects for the, the community uh, associated with so, MEV. So, so definitely. People say there are good MEV and bad MEV. Um, I'm not sure it's right to say there's a good MEV, but like some MEV is what you want to happen, which is like, you want arbitrage to happen. Arbitrage sound bad, but basically if the prices are skewed, right? Like one BTC is worth 10 ETH or something like that. And the price of ETH is so-and-so in US dollars, let's say 2000. And so there should be a ratio, like the BTC price in US dollars must, must meet that. Like you, you can't have like prices being wrong because there's an opportunity, right? If it's kind of like, well, listen, the ratio of BTC and ETH is wrong. I see, I see their prices. It's not really one to ten; it's one to eleven. I'll buy it until it reaches one to one to ten. And this is the good MEV. This is kind of like for decentralized exchanges to work, for borrowing and lending, for all these kind of things. You actually do want this to happen. You want arbitrage to happen, and kind of like make sure all the prices eventually kind of like equal to the, where they should be. The bad MEV is when people get screwed. The, the bad MEV is I made a trade and instead of that trading going through, somebody front run me and captured my value and I got less value because he saw that and back run, so he sandwiched me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the bad MEV that people try to minimize and democratize and do to reduce it. So MEV in general, like some of it is needed in most of it, what people talk about is actually a bad thing, but to be completely fair, if you look, it's not good for your trades, but it also wasn't that great for you when using Ethereum cost like $50 or $100 to make a transaction. And the reason that fees were so high, so that takes us to, I think, like, a, a, like to the next point, maybe. Fees were super high. What, what, what are the fees? Like, how are they determined or something like that? Well, you have like the blocks, how big blocks are, the gas limit of Ethereum. So in Bitcoin, the block size is determined by bytes, how many bytes can be in a block. In Ethereum, Ethereum is a series of instructions, right? Like store this value, read that value, add this number to that number and like buy here, sell there. And each operation costs what is called gas. And so it's the same measurement, but it measures it like what's the gas, how many gas can be in each block. And so fees are determined by how much the gas limit exists because everybody wants to participate, right? Everybody wants to send their transaction, but only the most valuable one will be there. So people, like if you are just willing to pay 0.01 cent for your transaction, and I'm willing to pay three cents for my transaction, then my transaction will get, like as a fee, my transaction will get in at, with similar higher value, higher paying transactions, and your transactions will be pushed out. So, so the chain is being used for the most valuable transactions. And that makes sense as it should be, right? So think of it as like as a demand and supply, right? The supply is the gas limit, how much room is in there. And the demand is like people want to make transactions, but they're not necessarily willing to pay that much on it. So the most valuable ones will get in. That would be the fee based on like the lower one among them. And everybody else would be priced out, um, which sounds bad, but it, it isn't necessarily bad. But that's in theory. In reality, something very, very different happened. What happened was not people bidding fees in order to be in the next block. They tried to bid fee to put fees in order to be the first in the next block. So it's not about being in the next block. It's about the order in that block. 
So prior to flashbots and MEV and the current structure, everybody just like outbid one another, which drove the fees through the roof. Like even with the gas limit increasing from 8 million to 10 million to 12 and a half million to 15 million. So we like we can talk about this and the Eagle project and all that in a second. But basically, as somebody who has a lot of like, I'm very well aware of the networking issues the gas limit and what can be done and which transaction, how many transactions can get, get there. Even though the supply, the room for fees grew drastically, fees actually went up because people were outbidding one another not to be in the next block, but where in the next block. And that drove everybody's fees through the roof. Now with the current state of MEV and Flashbot, so people try to create these bundles and try, well, I capture one ETH, I'll try to pay 0.9 of that to the miner, etc. This all happens outside of the regular fee payments happening. So regular fees went down by 10x or or more than that. So with everything bad regarding MEV and about like and, and it should be mitigated and it should be minimized and it should try to be democratized and to the best of our efforts. But let's not take it away. And and I was very skeptical and concerned regarding MEV and flashbots when when they came out. But let's not take the credit from them about being able to drastically reduce the fees for all the users of Ethereum, which is fantastic and great. And so now we went from this hyper high fees, weird situation into what we expected, the demand and the supply and kind of like, okay, how that is being set and how the fees are being like, depending on willingness of, pay, of people to pay fees to be in the next block and not where in the next block. So that's kind of like Flash Boys and Flash Bots and, and MEV, I think, and, and kind of like all that. Does that make sense? Right. And, and that seems more equitable because if, if you're if that speed isn't important and, you know, I mean, and you're, you know, you're trading into a market where you don't think there's going to be that kind of variation that makes your execution be um, negatively impacted by that, then then why not? In the U.S., there's a lot of there was a lot of discussion about even when you have these large firms providing all this liquidity and having that speed advantage, they also provided that incentivized them to provide a more liquid market, and mm -hmm. they were liquidity providers, so they normalized the market. Even though you could argue, well, you know, do the speed, and certainly there's there's a spectrum, right? It's you know there's there's abuses, but there's just also normal market economics. So before we actually move to some of the work you're doing on on managing gas limits and block size, I'm just going to like double click a little bit more on 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 this notion of 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 MEV and how it relates specifically to what block blocksrat is doing how does the networking component you know if you're all working off of the same mempool then arguably i guess it reduces the arbitrage across different pools and thus it it facilitates sort of a more orderly way of of managing these blocks at least everybody can see what everybody else is doing and it's not just attributed to sort of some sort of noise that occurs between different mempools i mean i'm summarizing it and i'm sure you have a better answer than i do professor so uh, I'll, I'll turn <laughs> first it to of all you. first first of all i'm not a pro like i got a phd i know i know I, I know i know i'm just I, I I'm playing into it that, he's like fine. nervous he's like i came onto your podcast as a ceo i'm not going to let people come out of here thinking that i'm a professor i i, I point noted he is not a, a professor he, he had aspirations not, do not believe a word he's saying do not believe um, a word i say that's that's number one for this podcast so i think what mev and flashbot does is kind of like siloing all these games happening from normal usage which is a good thing okay so it kind of 
dividing between and what I said about the fees and, and whatnot, et cetera. Like you want to send your friend some ETH, you don't super care where it is. Like, like it's not buying, it's not selling. Like you shouldn't be paying super high fees for doing something like that. And for that use cases and a bunch of others, it's really, really helpful. Like, so, so like you're just like, let whoever play the MEV game, play the MEV game among themselves. So MEV kind of like silos all these games. Now within that, again, but going back into what we're doing, if you hear about transactions propagating faster, then you have an advantage. You want to hear about all the opportunity. You, am I being front run? Is some like, should I front somebody, somebody else? Like all the things around that. So that's one thing that, is it an advantage? Well, it starts as an advantage, but once everybody has it, it's just like, you know, no trading firm will use like a, like a dial up like modem from like 97 or something like that in order to send their trades because it would be stupid, right? Everybody are using like one terabit per second, like um, wire in a very, like in a very well-connected office space or whatnot like that. And it's not like an advantage. It's just like not doing it would, would be madness. And so we are kind of like around that position. Hearing about blocks later when you have the opportunity to hear about them faster just like seems dumb. But so, so with that, we're just allowing to, for, for the actors to be like, th this is the professional grade thing to do. But in addition to that, a lot of the, like, like some people are the really not high frequency traders. They're, they're, all they want is, is not to try and make like front run somebody else. But some firms are doing like two trades a day. But when they do, they move millions of dollars. And so they want to have front running protection. Okay? They want to be, not to be front run by others. So we, we included this concept of private transactions or front running protection where give me a transaction. I don't broadcast it to everybody else to be front run. I'll just give it directly to the pools. They won't broadcast it. They'll just try to mine it. If you pay them enough fee, they'll mine it. If you don't pay them enough fee, they won't mine it. But it prevents you from being front run and being attacked by the ecosystem. It's not just providing like offensive weapons here. It's providing the armor as well. You don't want to be front run. Well, if you're big, if like if it's a small, like, you know, the daily trader, like you don't move enough money to be very, very important and worth front running. But if you're moving millions of dollars, you don't want to be front run. And so the current setup, the peer-to-peer -peer network is inefficient. It propagates stuff slowly and everybody can, it's visible for others who might not, Dan Robinson, like hold it the, the, the dark forest over the sci-fi novel. There are monsters in the dark forest and you need to be very, very quiet because they'll eat you. <laughs> Don't make a sound really. So it's very similar like that. You make a transaction, it has value, boom. You're like, if you saw an opportunity, they will see your opportunity and just like reach that faster than you. And so basically the idea is not to broadcast through that, but like having like other ways to, to kind of like divide the network rather than have everything visible for everyone. And in some cases it's valuable. And so th does that answer your question about it the does. network layer and the, and the, and the MEV side? I see how Blockstrout can sort of level the playing field uh, for the people on the network and also provide some defensive capabilities. And I guess- And, 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 and maybe it's worth mentioning, like these, def these defenses are not just for high, like big trading firms or something like that. The idea, we're not a very consumer facing company. That's not our expertise. Our expertise is infrastructure, but we partner with wallets and we partner with decentralized exchanges and with projects. So when they create a transaction, that is being broadcast through us. So we're like partnering with them. We're providing it. So it, it is available for the, you know, the small day trader or something like that. And anybody could benefit from hiding from the monsters of the dark forest. 
it would just be probably through like whether your decentralized exchange or your wallet rather than through us like it would be through us but we won't talk with you directly because we we're not a consumer facing company we're not we don't have a sleek ui and and whatnot and a giant sales team trying and like giant ads trying to get like all the people out there to use us rather we work with the infrastructure and the aggregators to provide this to the like the best user experience and then on the security layer or the ability to see the the mempool yourself i know you've spoken about that as well you want to touch on that sure so, so i don't want people to get the impression well listen locks are can now censor everybody and only they get it no no we're about speed everybody will see these transactions everybody will see these blocks we can't prevent them from propagating what we give is a speed advantage okay you'll hear about that block from somebody else but we'll tell you about it faster you don't need to trust us validate it yourself the way it works is like if you're running a node your node is connected to a bunch of random peers around the world we're just another peer connect to us your node doesn't know like it won't trust us. It will receive blocks from us. We'll validate in the same way. Only we would be much faster than everybody else. And if you're not running a node, if you're just like running a trading operation, you're already like using Infura or Alchemy or Chainstack. We've been partnering with Chainstack for a really long time. So their speed is actually good. So you're using one of them. We'll give you an API. Like we'll stream your blocks. We'll stream your transactions. And it will just give you like, a speed advantage. We don't really affect the security, right? We're not, we don't have the ability to censor. We won't give you things which are invalid. We can't prevent stuff from it. We'll just, but if you're trying to have an edge in trading here, then speed is what matters. You want to be as well connected to everybody as possible. And, you know, we spent a few years, like four years now almost, building such an infrastructure for people to use. Great, great. So now to kind of circle back to the, your project on gas limits, which you started to touch on before I yeah, derailed yes. you and brought you back. <laughs> so as somebody who's working on the network layer and whose scalability matters really, really strongly, then I am deeper in the world of gas limit than most. And we found that the current reality isn't great. The way it works is that miners and mining pools, specifically those who, who kind of like organize the miners, when they mine a block, every time they mine a block, they can either increase or decrease the gas limit from the previous one by 0.1%. So the result is that each mining pool, or the, the process is that each mining pool said, oh, I think it should be 15 million gas. And this one says, oh, I think it should be 12 million gas. And this one says like, oh, I think it should be 10. And each one, when it's mining a new block, try to push it in the direction it thinks. If it's too big, it will push it downward. If it's too low, it will push it upward. And the result is that majority of the hash power in Ethereum kind of like drives the gas limit towards like it. So it, it, it's jittery, but it hovers around what the miners think. And that's how it works in Ethereum, or at least in theory. What happens in reality is that 40% of the hash powers, all the small miners, don't even participate in this game. Why? I, I like to say, it's, it's kind of like the American voter. It's kind of like, well, my vote doesn't mind. Like, who cares what I vote? Like, there are so many people out there. I'm too insubstantial to, to affect it in any way. So it, to our surprise, we found some of them didn't even know that they affect the gas limit. It's not a problem. They just follow what the top three vote, like mining pools are doing. So Ethermine, Sparkpool, F2Pool, 
and to some extent, like pool four and five kind of like, like affect that as well. But basically they decide, like you have literally three people deciding what the gas limit, and that is a gas limit for the entire ecosystem. And even worse than that, they actually have a veto power. Okay, like if you have these actors, and then it's enough for one of them to say, I'm not changing, I'm keeping it at this level. And if the other two try to push it in the direction that they think, it would stay where they are because the other two are like 40% or 30, 40% of that. They're not big enough in order to push the, and that. And so because 40% don't even participate, they're just voting for, yeah, whatever we're doing right now, then the three top pools actually decide on the gas limit. And A, it's not a pretty site. That is not what decentralization look like. But more than that, it's not just that it's centralized or too centralized because centralization and decentralization is a spectrum. They're not necessarily incentivized to push it in the right direction. Like if they say, oh, we think it's safe. We think it's good. We could totally increase the gas limit and we actually believe the gas limit should be higher. That would actually drive fees down, at least in the short term. They might go up like maybe a year from now, we'll be at the same spot, they'll actually make more money. But immediately, they're probably looking at a downward like turn off the fees because people would be able, like again, supply and demand, you increase the supply, prices drop. And so they're not incentivized actually to increase it to the highest level, which is safe. So that's point number two. And point number three, even forgetting about centralization, even forgetting about misalignment of incentives, let's say they want to do what the community wants. Who the hell knows what the community wants? And so this is the current situation, which kind of like makes it that the gas limit arguments resurface every six months. Every six months, usability increases, and then people say, oh, we should increase it. And some people say, oh, we should decrease it. And people argue and argue, but it's all pointless because they're not the one deciding. It's the pools who decide, and the pools aren't really sure what they should be doing and what the community wants. One more point on this. Why is that important? Because every 2 million of gas limits, so right now it's a, like it was last year, it was like a 10. If you increase it to 12 million gas, that means revenues of something like $100 million per year of value for users. So the gas limit is actually very, very important. It defines how many trades can happen on Uniswap and how many borrowing and how many lending could happen like on Maker and all these kind of things. It really defines how much usage can work. And it's tons of money for the users. And so we came up with the Ethereum gas limit project or EGL, like E-G-L, EGL. It has three components. We create a token, anybody with ETH can stake it and get free eagles. So this is how people get eagles, or you could, I don't know, buy them or, or, or whatever. People with eagles can vote on their desired gas limit. So I can vote. It's a collaborative tool. Everybody can kind of like work together. And every week there is a tally of votes. So like, it's gonna go, we want a gas limit. If we look at everybody and do a POS, right? Proof of stake, and I think, well, I have a lot of eagles. So my vote carries more. You have less eagles, so maybe it carries less, but if you lock it for a longer period of time, so if you're a long-term actor, then your vote carries more weight. But every week there is like, oh, a desired gas limit. There's a tally of vote, and this is what the community wants. Now this doesn't forces the pools and the miners to do anything. Like it just tells them, this is what we want. But pools and miners, when they mine a new block, they can sweep free eagles. When you mine a block, you can get free eagles. And how many free eagles you get depend on how closely you follow the desired gas limit. And maybe the last piece, which is worth mentioning, we're actually giving quite a lot of eagles to core devs of Ethereum because 
for them to vote because it's important, but more important for them to signal. So core devs should, we want them to signal to the community. So each one can vote. We give insight. You have like a hundred core, different core devs. They have different perspective and thoughts. And Eagle allows you to see what they're doing. Maybe you're A16Z and you're betting billions of dollars on Ethereum success and tokens on top of it. And you really want ETH to succeed. So you see what others are thinking, you hire your own experts, you study it very deeply, and you come to a conclusion. I think the current, like the gas limit should be, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it should be 15, maybe 15 is fine, but we should really aim to be it at the highest level, which is, which is safe. And that's kind of like the eagle idea, and we're super excited about it. Do you think this could be used as a tool to sort of coordinate a price pressure up, a gas pressure up? A price, you mean price off, like the to gas, increase fees? Yeah, to increase fees. So short answer is no. There are two, and again, I gave like a high level overview. First, you can't really, it doesn't change the gas limit significantly. Oh, like we changed it from 12 and a half to 15 million on a day. So like it doesn't change by two and a half million. It can only change by up to 1 million gas per week. So it's a slow moving system intentionally. But more important than that, that we get usually a slightly different question, like a similar question. Can it be misused? Can scammers or, or hustlers or whatever try to use it to push it and kind of like they have a strong incentive and kind of like make some value out of that? And the answer is, is that the system rewards long-term participation much more strongly than short-term participation. So if you buy, 10,000 eagles and you vote with them and you're trying to make something and you lock them up for a week. If I vote, if I lock mine for eight weeks, my vote counts eight times more than you. Okay? These are companies that has a lot of interest in the success of Ethereum, right? They're better, like they want to see Ethereum succeeding because their entire business is about crypto, ETH and others, and they want whatever is good for that. Same goes for, I don't know, consensus and Polychain and Pantera and A16Z and whoever. So the money, thinking of locking up your wealth for ten for eight weeks is unconceivable for somebody trying to get like quick ARB opportunities and in these kind of operations. No, it's it's not a <laughs> it's not a real concern. Like so, we should be we should be aware of it, but but like all the incentives and, and mechanisms are built against it. So Yuri, this has been great. I, I, you know, I really appreciate it. It's been fantastic having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining. Eric, thank you so much for having me. This was great fun. I hope listeners found it interesting and fun too.